Good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 8? Last week in our study in the book of Joshua, we finished chapter 7, where we saw Israel had uh, suffered a demoralizing defeat against a small, rather insignificant city called Ai. In fact, 36 Jewish soldiers were killed in that battle. The reason we learned later on was because Achan, who was a Jew, had stolen some of the spoil of Jericho. Now, the spoil of Jericho, being the first fruits of conquest in the land of Canaan, belonged to God. In fact, God said it. He said, these first fruits or this spoil is dedicated to me. It's holy. It's consecrated. It belongs to me and it's to be taken and put in my treasury. Every other battle you fight after this, the spoil is yours. But this first battle, this spoil belongs to me. Well, they went in and they took the city of Jericho. And Achan, we later on find out in the story, saw a beautiful Babylonian garment, uh, a wedge of gold and some silver. And he lusted after those things, took them and put them in his tent and thought he had gotten away with it. Well, now comes the Battle of Ai, which is next on the road to conquest. And because Ai was a small town, the Joshua's uh, captains came to him and said, look, let us go out and spy out the city and, and uh, we'll decide what we need in the way of men. So they spied out the city, came back, said, look, it's a small town. We won't need the whole army. Just give us two or 3,000 guys. We'll go in there. We'll take it and so on. So Joshua says, fine, go ahead. When the guys got there and started fighting against the city, all of a sudden the men of Ai were, rose up and were beating quite badly the army of Israel. In fact, the army of Israel turned and fled. In the process, 36, as I said, soldiers died. Well, the problem is that uh, when Achan uh, sinned against the Lord, he brought sin into the camp, which also, Lord, uh, which also, I should say, brought the judgment of God upon the whole nation. Joshua at this time does not know what Achan has done. When he gets word that his soldiers have been defeated, he's stunned, he's shocked, he falls on his face before the Lord, desperate and confused, and begins to accuse the Lord foolishly. Lord, why have you broken your word to us? Why have you not kept your promise to us that you are going to give us victory over all the enemies in this land you've given us? Lord, what is going on here? I mean, now that we've been defeated by this small, insignificant city, well, the other nations are going to get wind of this. They're going to be emboldened. They're going to come against your people. Surround us and wipe us out, and then what are you going to do for your great name? So Joshua is really lying on his face. He's really accusing God foolishly. God, you've lied to us, basically, is what he's saying. You have not kept your promise. I don't know who's got the greater sin at this point, Achan or Joshua. Well, the Lord responds to Joshua and says, look, get up off your face. I haven't let Israel down. I haven't broken my word. Israel has sinned and has taken some of the accursed things and brought them into their tent. And therefore, you will not be able to stand against your enemies. Neither will I be with you any longer until you remove the accursed thing from your midst. Tomorrow, Joshua, you line up the whole nation. And by lot, I'm going to give to you the man who has done this. So that's what happened. Next morning, the whole nation gathered and Joshua began to cast lots. The lots fell on the tribe, I think it was Judah, and then the various families and so on, until finally Achan was chosen. And Joshua said to him, Son, what have you done? Make full confession to God. And so Achan admitted that he had taken some of the things God had forbidden, 
some of the things that belonged to the Lord. And uh, God had uh, directed that Achan and his entire family be stoned, that the sin would be removed from the nation. And then it says, after uh, Achan uh, was destroyed and all, the sin was removed from the midst of God's people, again, God's blessing and favor returned to the nation. And uh, the majority of chapter 8, verses 1 through 29, actually talks about or chronicles their conquest now of Ai. So they go back against Ai. We read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and rise and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai as, uh, and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. If Achan would have just waited a battle, he would have gotten all the blessings he would have wanted in the form of riches. But instead he rushed God, disobeyed God, did it his way, and it cost him his life. God says, lay an ambush for the city behind it, and so on. And here's what happened. The strategy that God gave to Joshua in fighting this battle was this. Take 30,000 guys and have them lay in ambush behind the city, hiding out so that the people can't see them. Around the breaking of day, you take 5,000 guys and camp in plain view in front of the city, where when the people of Ai get up, they see you guys camp there, and they're going to be emboldened because they beat you last time. They're going to come out and attack. And sure enough, that's what happened. As soon as Joshua encamped with his guys, 5,000 men in front of the city, as soon as the sun came up and the men of Ai saw that uh, they were out there encamped, ready to go to war against Ai again, they were emboldened. The army of Ai raced out, and Joshua and his men turned and fled. This was all part of the plan. And when they got far enough away from the city, at a given signal, Joshua held up his javelin. That was the signal. And uh, the 30,000 guys that were laying in ambush behind the city rose up, fled into the city, set it on fire. When the men of Ai looked behind them and saw the smoke coming up from the city, and then all of a sudden Joshua and his guys turned and now came at them, they realized they were in an ambush. And so God gave to Joshua and the children of Israel the complete victory. They wiped out the entire city, burned it to the ground, hung the king of Ai on a tree, or, uh, and then cut him down before sunset according to Jewish law, and cast his body in the front in front of the gates of Ai and put a mound of stones over him to act as a memorial of the victory which God had given them. I want to just offer you a very simple outline of this section, verses 1 through 29, a section I'm entitling, Getting Back on Track. Very simple, getting back on track. Very simple outline, two points. Fellowship restored, victory regained. Fellowship restored, victory regained. First of all, their fellowship with God restored. When sin entered into the camp of Israel, their fellowship with God was broken. We're talking about believers now. Whether you talk about Old Testament believers who knew God or New Testament Christians, I'm talking to believers now. Once we gave our heart to Christ, we were joined with the Lord, and we have fellowship with Him. If sin enters into our lives or our church or whatever it might be, and we don't deal with it, that fellowship on a practical level is broken. God told Joshua this in chapter 7 at the end of verse 12, where he said, Neither will I be with you any longer until you remove the accursed thing from your midst. Fellowship was broken. See? Fellowship had been broken. You remember 
Now, spiritually speaking now, but you remember that Joshua didn't go out with the army in their battle against Ai the first time. Remember that? Remember we talked about that? I mean, I think Joshua was overconfident, okay? His captains went out, spied out the city, not a big town. You don't even have to go, Joshua. Give us two or 3,000 guys. We'll go defeat them, and then, you know, we don't have to take the whole army. Even. I think Joshua was overconfident, okay? That was the practical application. But we know that the Greek name for Joshua is Jesus. And we have pointed out more than once that Joshua becomes a type of Christ in the book of Joshua. Now, not when he blows it, of course, uh, but in, in general, all right? In general, he becomes a type of Christ. Joshua leading them into the battle to take the promised land. Our captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, leading us into the devil's territory to take our promised land, that we might inherit all the great and precious promises that God has given to us in Christ, right? So we are fighting for our promised land of of sorts, which is to possess all the promises that God has given to us as his people. So in that regard, Joshua becomes a type of Christ. But notice, after sin entered into the camp, Joshua didn't go out with them to the battle of Ai, did he? Where they were defeated. And I think the Spirit is trying to say to us, look, if you allow sin in your life that you're not dealing with, Uh, or in your church, you know what? Then the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be with us, practically speaking. He's always with us positionally. He's one with us. But I'm speaking practically now. He won't be with us as we go out and fight against the enemy. We'll be on our own, basically. And you know what? You don't want to be on your own when you're fighting against the devil because he's way too strong for any of us. We need the Lord. But I think that... In a very real way, the Holy Spirit is teaching us, look, when sin entered into the camp of Israel, Joshua didn't go out to battle. Now, he had his own reasons, practically speaking. I think he was overconfident. But spiritually, the Holy Spirit is telling us, our Jesus will not go out with us to battle if we allow sin in the camp, sin in our lives that we're not dealing with. Say, well, all right. But how can we be restored then in our relationship with the Lord and begin to see once again his blessings and power and victory in our lives. What do we do then? What if we've let sin in, into our life or into our hearts? What do we do to get restored back to the Lord? That's a good question. And I'm going to spend just a few minutes on that because I think it's part of the, the heart of what is happening here in chapter 8 when they eventually now go on to have victory. God lays out in his word the steps that will lead to restoration after separation has occurred due to sin. And again, I'm talking now to people who are believers, Christians. There's three steps that need to precede restoration. Acknowledge the sin, confess the sin, repent of the sin. Those three things. Let me go through them quickly. First of all, we must acknowledge the sin. Sin can't be dealt with in our lives. God can't deal with it until we first acknowledge it exists. Now, sometimes that's easy because we know what it is. All right. Sometimes we're sinning and we know what we're doing. We know we're doing wrong. Sometimes there are sins of the heart, like pride or some other thing. Uh, Maybe it's a sin that we committed we didn't even realize it was a sin. Or we did it so quickly we don't even remember we did it, but we did do it. These are what's called hidden sins or secret faults, as the Bible calls them. And until we acknowledge they're there, God can't even begin to deal with them in our lives. Remember what God said through Jeremiah in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. There's a lot of things in our hearts that we don't even realize are there, you know? Especially because we tend to paint 
a rosier picture of our heart than is true, I, I think, in general. All right? I mean, you know, we think everything's great. You know? In fact, the Bible says everyone pretty much thinks they're a, they're a good person. But God sees the heart. God says, you know, how can you know your own heart? I know the heart. I search the heart. David said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David says, Lord, search my heart because I don't even know what's always in my I don't always know what's in my heart. There could be secret sins down there that I'm not even aware of. Pride or lust or jealousy or anger that I'm holding on to. Or something that I don't even realize is there. And I know it's hindering. If it is there, it's hindering my relationship with you and my walk with you. Lord, search my heart. Reveal to me what's in there. Because until you do, I can't acknowledge. I don't even know it's there. Again, David said in Psalm 19, verse 12, Who can understand his errors? Lord, cleanse me from secret faults. Secret faults cannot be cleansed from our lives until they are revealed by God and acknowledged by us. How does he do that? How does he reveal these secret faults? Well, a lot of times it happens just like it happened with Israel. It just seems like we're not having any victory over certain areas of our life. Uh, or maybe it's a string of adversities that just keep coming at us, and we begin to wonder, Lord, what's going on here? I mean, what's happening here? I mean, just one problem after another. Lord, what's happening? Sometimes, listen, sometimes, not always, sometimes it's God's way of getting our attention to show us something is not right, but we begin to seek him for what that might be. Just like with, that's what Joshua should have done, I should say. When Israel was defeated, Joshua should have gotten his, on his face and not accused God. He should have said, Lord, what have we done wrong here? What have we done wrong? Because you promised to give us victory. If we've suffered a defeat, that something's wrong in us. What have we done wrong here? That's what we should do. When we think that we're going from one defeat after another, one problem after another, we need to stop and say, Lord, is there sin in the camp? Is there something in my heart? Or am I doing something that is wrong that maybe I don't even realize it. I need for you to show me, Lord. And I want to just qualify that by saying this. Every time I teach on this, I have to kind of give you a little caveat because not every defeat or every problem is a result of sin. Again, Job was a righteous guy. Yet at one point he found himself going through some of the most horrific trials of his life. We know it wasn't because of what he did. It was just that God was testing Job and teaching Job some very important lessons. Sometimes we're really not walking in sin. It's just that God is allowing us to go through a period of adversity to really toughen us up, teach us about him, and so on. So I'm not saying it's always your fault. But I'm saying that, you know what, take some spiritual inventory. I do that. Because it's like, Lord, okay, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I really can't think of any thing that I'm, but sometimes the Lord will say, well, wait a minute now, your attitude about that person has been wrong. Or there is this in your heart, or there's some pride there. Once the Lord reveals to us that there is sin that he wants us to deal with, as soon as he shows us it exists, well, at that point, we have a choice. We can either excuse it, this is a big one today, oh, it's no big deal, everyone's doing it, that kind of thing. Or we can play the victim and push the blame onto somebody else. Well, it's really not my fault. They kind of made me do it. Or uh, it's not, I'm, I'm a victim here. That's a very common one today also. Or instead of excusing ourselves and accusing someone else, 
we can take responsibility and confess the sin to God. Remember what uh, John said in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 9. He said, if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, as we've pointed out many times before, the word confess there is a Greek word that literally means to say the same thing, to say the same thing. In other words, when God points my sin out and, says, you know, and shows me that I've done something wrong, I need to confess that. What does that mean? I need to say, Lord, I see now what you're talking about, and I confess to you that that's wrong. The word confess means to say the same thing. Lord, I know it's wrong because your word says it's wrong. You have set the standard. Okay, the world might say it's okay. The world doesn't matter. It's not the world or society that dictates what's right and wrong. It's what the Lord says. I don't care if everyone's doing it. It doesn't make it right. And that's a mentality that a lot of people have. Well, everyone's doing it. As if that makes it right. And God says, look, I'm the one who made you. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. God speaks to these idols. He says, all you gods, with a little g, if you didn't make heaven and earth, guess what? God, with a big g, is going to judge you. And I think primarily he was talking about the people in Israel who had turned themselves into a god. What does that mean? They were saying, hey, look, I get to determine what's right or wrong. I get to set the standard. God says, no, you don't. If you didn't make everything, you don't get to set the standard. I'm the creator. I get to set the standard. And it doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong. It only matters what I say is right and wrong. And therefore, when we do violate something God has said, to confess it means, Lord, I say the same thing as you. You said it's wrong, and I agree with that because I know your word is true. Now, look, even at this point, the sin has not yet been fully dealt with until we take the third and final step towards forgiveness and that is restoration, excuse me, that we take the third and final step towards forgiveness and restoration, and that is repentance. Repentance. Very important. Acknowledge the sin, confess the sin, but you must then repent of the sin. The word repentance comes from a Greek word, as we've already talked about numerous times, that literally means to have a change of mind. But a change of mind that leads to a change of action or behavior. Sure, you have... You're going in the wrong direction, right? You're on a trip, okay? You're, you're going down the expressway or the highway or something. And at one point it dawns on you, you know what? I think we're going in the wrong direction. I think we've passed our destination. You have to have a change of mind before you can have a change of direction, right? So obviously, <laughs> repentance, first of all, encompasses a change of mind. But it also then leads to a change of direction or a change of action. Here's how it looks in our lives. Lord... We're going down the highway of life, we'll say. And we're moving in a direction. This is mostly before we got saved, uh, primarily. But, you know, we were moving in a direction away from God. God's over here. I'm going away from God because I'm going towards sin. At one point, the Lord begins to really get a hold of my heart. He begins to show me I'm going in the wrong direction. Everything I'm wanting from life, everything I I think life is going to bring me in this direction, which is, towards selfishness and sin and materialism and and sexual pleasure and all that stuff, I begin to realize as the Spirit of God works in my heart, you know what, you're going in the wrong direction. None of those things are going to satisfy you, and they will only lead to destruction. I see that, Lord. I have a change of mind. I'm going in the wrong direction. Now that leads me to turn around and begin to move in the right direction. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. Listen to me. A person 
can admit they did something. They can admit the action and even confess that it violated what God has said and therefore was wrong. But without repentance, listen, the sin is not going to be forgiven and you will not be restored back into fellowship with God. A good example of this is King Saul. And I know we've talked about this before, but just bear with me. King Saul, of course, was the first king of Israel. At one point, God said to Saul, Saul, I want you to take the armies of Israel, go and, and uh, attack the Amalekites. I want you to wipe all of them out. In fact, all of their animals as well. Why did God say that? Because when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, two or th- and a half to three billion people, as they came out of Egypt and were going, Moses led them out through the wilderness. At the very back of the line, you had the handicapped, the elderly, the sickly, the infirmed, all the people that couldn't really keep up too well. They were the weakest in the nation. What did the Amalekites do? They attacked the rear of the line and picked off all the people that could least defend themselves. And God says, that was such a reprehensible, cowardly act. At one point, I'm going to give a command that you are to wipe out these people. Well, that command came to Saul. So Saul takes the armies of Israel and goes up against the Amalekites. And here's what he does. He wipes out most of the people, but he keeps King Agag alive and some of the choicest of the animals to offer to God. Now here he comes back from the battle. He is all excited. He is really thinking he's done a great thing. God says to Samuel, you better go out and talk to Saul. He has not kept my word. So Samuel goes out there and confronts Saul, and Saul's all excited. Blessed are you of the Lord. We have, com- we have done all that the Lord has commanded. And Saul, Samuel says, well, if you've done all that the Lord has commanded, I hear a lot of bleeding and a lot of cattle noise in my ears. Well, We've done all the Lord has commanded, except we've kept, no. See, when you get an except in there, then you haven't really done all the Lord has commanded. Except we've kept, we've kept alive some of the choices of the animals to offer to the Lord in worship. Is that good? Why kill these animals? God said to kill them. Yes, but it's, it makes more sense to offer them to the Lord. Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? To heed or to obey the voice of the Lord your God is better than sacrifice. And to listen to what he has said, better than the fat of rams. So Saul, uh, Samuel confronts Saul with his sin. And listen to what Saul said in 1 Samuel 15, verses 24 and 5. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. And return with me that I may worship the Lord. Look it. Saul was confronted with his sin. Saul admitted what he had done. He acknowledged the sin. And even went further than that. He confessed that he had violated God's word. He had violated God's commandment. And therefore what he had done was wrong. And yet, instead of repenting, he tries to offer God worship instead. Now think about that. You know, we would rather do anything than repent of our sins. We would rather go to church, read our Bibles, pray, sing God's songs. We would rather do anything to repent because repent means the change and change is hard. And so instead of really repenting and making the changes necessary that are going to please the heart of God, oftentimes Christians ratchet up their spiritual activities. They go to church more. They read their Bibles more. Is that bad? It's bad if you're trying to use those things to cover your sin. 
is if you can trade those and say, well, Lord, I'm not going to really repent. I really don't want to change, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come to church more. I'll read your word more. I'll sing songs to you. That'll fix it, right? God says, no, that's not going to fix it. Yeah, but he was really sorry, wasn't he? Yeah, Saul had remorse. Saul did have remorse, but he never allowed the remorse to lead him to repentance. Look, remorse and regret can produce a reaction of sorrow and even tears. But sorrow and tears that are not necessarily over the sin itself, but really over the consequences the sin has brought into my life. I think every man or woman uh, in prison today has remorse. They're sorry. Sorry they got caught. Not necessarily sorry for what they did. And that's the problem today. When God points out our sins, often people are willing to acknowledge it and even confess it to the point where they say, well, Lord, I know it's wrong. And I feel badly about it. I really do. And they kind of feel that, well, because I feel real bad about what I did, that somehow is good enough. That's all God wants. Look, I have known people that were extremely sorrowful, had a lot of remorse over the things that they did in their lives to their spouses or their children when they were growing up or crimes they committed against society. But a lot of those same people are not sorry enough to actually change anything. They just feel sorry for themselves. That's all self-centered. See, remorse and regret are self-centered. Repentance is God-centered or God-focused. And a person can feel badly about what they've done, but really, that hasn't really touched upon the sin itself at all. I mean, think about this. Satan knows repentance restores your relationship with God. If Satan can counterfeit that path with remorse or regret, where you feel sorry about what you've done, but it's all absorbed in self-pity, well, if he can get you thinking that the, the sorrow you're feeling is all God wants, he can counterfeit the path that leads to repentance and in the process make you think something spiritual has happened when it really hasn't. You're still separated from God. Your fellowship with God has not been restored. He knows how important this is to our walk with God. And I think it's possible for a Christian to remain in an attitude of remorse for years over their sin and get nowhere in victory over that sin. Because God doesn't work through regret or remorse. He works through repentance. That's what Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Paul said, talking on this very issue. He said, Now I rejoice, talking to the Corinthians, that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. See, Paul had to fire them off a pretty stern letter because of all the sin going on in their church. And Paul was afraid that they were not going to receive it properly, that they were going to hate him when he was just trying to help them. And so he got word from Titus that they had received the letter properly and that they were sorry, but that their sorrow was not worldly. It was godly sorrow. It led them to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, he said, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Now, of course, in that context, Paul is talking to those in Corinth who were unbelievers. But, you know, when you're talking about Christians, repentance... Or sorrow that leads to repentance is what brings about restoration. Paul says, this is not to be regretted, for the sorrow of the world produces death. You know, we go out witnessing uh, to people. We often try to witness to them by saying, look, if you were to die tonight and you had to stand before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? Almost always they say, well, because I'm a good person. 
and we say, well, can we ask you a few questions to really determine whether you are a good person? Because everyone says they're a good person, the Bible says. Yeah, sure. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, who hasn't? Well, what does that make you? Well, I guess a liar. That's right. Have you ever stolen anything? Never. Now I know they're a liar because, you know, so we soften it a little bit and say, okay, well, even when you were a kid, you steal a piece of, well, yeah, when I was a kid, I excuse me, gum. Okay, so what does that make you? A thief. Have you ever taken the holy name of God and used it as a cuss word? Well, sure. What does that make you? Blasphemer? That's right. So when you stand before God, do you think he's going to say you're innocent or guilty? Good or guilty? Well, I guess he's going to say I'm guilty. Do you think he's going to let you into heaven or have to send you to hell? Well, I guess he'll have to send me to hell. Does that bother you? Well, sure. Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell. But you cannot receive that forgiveness until you acknowledge you're a sinner. That you have done wrong, and it's wrong because God said it's wrong, and now what you need to do is repent. And you can come to Christ, and Christ will forgive you for all those sins. See, repentance is so important. And how do we know what path we're on? If it's just the path of remorse or if it's true repentance, you'll know because you'll want to make a change. Okay, you want to make a change. Israel had to make a change. In this case, it was to execute a guy and his family for the sin they brought into the nation. Once Israel removed the sin from the camp, their fellowship with God was restored, which meant their victory was regained. And we read this in verse 1 of chapter 8. Where the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. Arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. So victory was regained. And of course, we just talked about the chapter, how that God did did then give them victory over the city of Ai. But let me just say this. The Christian life consists of constant battles with the enemy. Now, we know that. We are soldiers in a war. And I've been trying to communicate to you guys that for too many Christians, the Christian life is a playground but not a battleground. And then they wonder why like, they're getting beat up so bad. Because you're not taking this war seriously. The devil's not playing games. So either you put on the whole armor of God and go out there as a soldier of Christ and really take all the precautions God has given to you and do this thing with seriousness in your heart. If you don't, the devil is going to have victor over you. Not because God wants it, because you're allowing it. But we are going to have constant battles over the enemy, uh, with the enemy in our Christian life. And I, again, I just want to say to you, our strength against the enemy and victory over the enemy will largely rely on how close we are to the Lord at any given time. So that's our responsibility. Draw close to the Lord, and of course, his strength and power will be at a maximum in your life. You walk, follow the Lord at a distance like Peter did, you're going to wind up denying him and getting into some problems. But we are going to fight constant battles in the Christian life. And no doubt we are going to suffer some setbacks along the way. But when we do, the worst thing that you can do is lie there and give up and say, I quit. It's too hard. I mean, no matter how hard I try to live for the Lord, it's just, I can never do it. I'm just going to give up and quit. See, God doesn't want that. God didn't want Joshua to quit, although he was ready to. He just wanted Joshua to understand what was going on so he could acknowledge the sin and deal with it. And the same is true in our lives. The Lord loves us. He wants to be with us. He knows that we can't have victory uh, by ourselves. He knows the battle belongs to him. 
So we have to understand that, look, the Lord wants to be with us as we fight uh, our battles against the devil. We struggle with the flesh, the world, and so on. But we need to understand that when we do have a setback, and we're all going to blow it. We're all going to lose a battle here or there. When we do that, the worst thing we can do is give up and not try again. One author said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Don't you love that? You know, as a Christian, every day is a new beginning. His mercies are new every morning. Every day is a fresh start, a clean slate. Every day God says, look, it doesn't matter how badly you blew it yesterday. Today is a fresh start. Today is the first day of the rest of your life with me. Learn from your mistakes. Draw close to me. And let's walk together consistently, all right? And I'll be with you, and I'll give you victory. I like what author Philip Keller said about this. He said, and I quote, When we fail, the opportunity for progress remains open to us. But the fact remains that the recovery of lost ground is always painful and costly. And I think of a man who is married for a number of years, we'll say, and then goes ahead and commits adultery on his wife or a wife on her husband. And now the trust is shattered. Satan has had a tremendous victory in this area of their life. Can that trust be restored? Can that marriage be restored? Yes. But you've lost a lot of ground. And it's going to take time. But God is with you in rebuilding your marriage. How much better just to obey God and not have to suffer that loss of ground? But Keller said, recovery of lost ground is always painful and costly. Still, we put our hand in God's hand and press on. He goes on to to, uh, liken this process to a child learning how to walk. When the process of trying to walk falls flat on his face in the dirt. And of course starts to cry and gets frustrated because he can't walk the way he wants to. And Keller said, but the loving parent rushes over to pick the child up, hugs him with reassurance, wipes away the tears, brushes off the dirt, and puts him on his feet again, encouraging him to try to walk once more. You know, our Heavenly Father does that exact same thing with his children. Exactly the same. I'll share this with you. I read this somewhere. It goes like this. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all spoiled and spotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. And that's how God is, isn't he? He's not against us for our sin. He is for us against sin. He stands with us. We are his children. He knew before he ever created any of us all the sins we were ever going to commit. We can't surprise him when we sin or when we blow it. We can grieve his heart, sure. But he already knew everything we were ever going to commit, and he already chose us, not because of who we were going to be, but because of his great love. Look, you may lose a battle here or there over sin. But listen, God promises you and I that we will win the war. All right? We're going to lose a battle along the way here and there. But God has promised us we're going to win the war if we keep drawing close to him each day and depend on his strength. Let me close. I see a couple of lessons that we can take from this, okay, from this section that we can apply into our lives. The first one is this. God may discipline us, but he will never 
disown us. God may discipline us for our sin, but he will never disown us because of our sin. You know, God made a promise to Joshua and the children of Israel in chapter 1, verse 5, that didn't just apply to them. How do I know? Because the writer to the Hebrews uh, states this exact same promise and applies it to our lives as Christians in chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, verse 5, where God simply said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Talking to his children now, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Some people would quickly add, well, yeah, as long as I don't blow it. Well, no, wait a minute. Why would God have to tell you that if you're walking in total obedience? There's no point for him to, to forsake you if you're walking in total obedience. He knows it's when we blow it that the devil comes in to condemn us and says, God is no longer with you. He's forsaken you. And God quickly says, no, don't listen to that. That's a lie of the devil to condemn you. I promised you that I would never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, but Lord, what if I walk away a million miles from you? If the day comes when you recognize you're going in the wrong direction and you turn around to repent, I'm right there. You're going to find out. I'm standing right there. Because you can walk away from me, but I'll never walk away from you. I made you a promise, and I intend to keep it. You might be unfaithful at times in your promise to be committed to me. I will never be unfaithful to my promise to be committed to you. That's exactly what God wanted Israel to know, and he wants all of us to know. That God will discipline us when we sin, but he will not disown us. Paul really uh, drives this home in Romans chapter 8. I'll let you read the chapter this week. One of the greatest chapters on the security of the believer anywhere in the New Testament. A chapter that starts with no condemnation and ends with no separation. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. At the end, he affirms one of the greatest promises that will never be separated from God eternally in the last two verses. Verses 38 and 9. He said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is going to be able to separate us from the love of God, which is what? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's talking to believers now. When you give your heart to Christ, you are placed in Christ. Now, the question is, are you a created thing? Is everyone here a created thing? Because if you're a created thing, God is saying to you, not even you are going to be able to separate yourself from my love. Because you're in Christ and you are completely forgiven. You are completely accepted in the beloved one, which is my son. And you may blow it, and you will. And when you do, if I bring it to your attention and you don't deal with it, I'll have to discipline you. But it's always because I love you. It's always because I love It's never going to be out of anger. And it's always going to be with a desire to restore you that I can continue to bless your life. Remember what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 6? For whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens or disciplines, right? Verse 8. But if you are without chastening or discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Look, if God doesn't discipline you, you don't belong to him because God only disciplines his kids. I mean, when my kids were little, I only disciplined them. I didn't discipline anybody else's kids. Get in trouble doing that. Well, God's not going to get in trouble, but he doesn't do it. All right? So if God's not, if you're getting away with sin is the point. If you're out there sinning and God's not doing anything, well, for a little while he may not because the goodness of God leads us to repentance. But if time goes on and you're living in sin, you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're doing something that's wrong and time keeps going on and nothing is happening, 
You have to ask yourself, am I really a child of God? Because he disciplines his kids. Because he loves us. Chapter 12, verse 11. Now, no discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. No child likes a spanking, right? But you know what? It's good because afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I'm thankful that my Heavenly Father doesn't let me get away with things. I mean, I'm, not that I'm trying too hard, but every once in a while, you know, you begin to play fast or loose with something, you know, and the, and the Lord really just, you know, he, he won't let me get away with it. And I've taken great comfort in that because I realize that he wants me to stay close to him. He doesn't want me to walk away in sin where he can't bless me and do for me all that he wants to do. So the first lesson is God may discipline us, but he will never disown us. And this is quick. Number two, learn from your past failures so you don't keep on repeating the same old pattern of sin and get stuck in a circular walk with God where you're really going nowhere. That's what happened in the wilderness for 40 years, by the way. They kept wandering in circles going nowhere. Learn from your mistakes, your failures, your past sins. God has forgiven you. Learn from your mistakes and move forward and stop repeating the same old pattern of sin. As we look at Israel, and Israel is a good example for all of us who are God's people. As we look at Israel up to this point, as they were led out of Egypt under Moses and now have come into the promised land to fight this most recent battle in Ai, there is a, a pattern that has emerged that's going to continue on in their nation, unfortunately, and we see it clearly in the book of Judges. Here's the pattern. Obedience followed by victory. Victory followed by blessing. Blessing followed by pride and then disobedience. Disobedience followed by defeat. Defeat followed by judgment. Judgment followed by repentance. Repentance followed by obedience. Obedience followed by victory. And they just repeated the same old thing. They didn't learn anything, did they? They kept taking God's goodness for granted. And look, God wants us, he knows we're going to blow it. Our frame is but dust, he knows that. But he expects us to learn from our mistakes and our sins also. Because he would like to lead us into some really blessed, fruitful experiences with him and serving him in ministry. And it's our choice whether or not we're going to just wander around in a spiritual wilderness our whole life, obeying God for a while, then getting lax again towards sin, falling into the same old pattern. You know what? A lot of Christians do that. They just wander aimlessly their entire Christian life in a spiritual wilderness. But if you learn from your mistakes and allow God to take you forward, well, you grow. We're all going to fall. But it's through those times of stumbling and falling, we learn to walk and then run. And that's what God's looking for. He wants people that will run their race for Christ with a seriousness because they want to win. They want to go all the way. So God give us grace to stop listening to the culture which tells us, look, these things aren't wrong. Everyone's doing it. And let's obey what he has said. Let's follow in Jesus' footsteps that he might bless us in all that he leads us to do. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, your mercy, your grace, your patience, your love. Forgive us, Lord, for playing fast and loose with sin, for not taking sin seriously, for thinking that it doesn't matter or you don't really care. It does matter, and you do care. It grieves your heart, 
and it brings consequences into our lives that you do not want us to have to bear, but consequences that will hopefully then lead us to repentance, that you might restore us and bless our lives once again. Father, forgive us if we're wandering around in some kind of a spiritual wilderness, Lord, just walking in circles. Give us grace, Lord, to stop doing that and to start walking with Jesus every day, moving forward, being used by you in greater and greater ways. We want to stand before you someday, Lord, and hear you say, well done, good and faithful slave. Well done. You were faithful in little things. And now enter into the joy of your Lord. We just thank you, Lord. Give us grace to learn the lessons that Israel learned at Ai, that we not repeat those lessons over and over again in our lives. We just praise you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.